Are you interested in elevating your energy, getting rid of mind fog, saying goodbye to inflammation for good, repairing your gut biome, detoxing from cancer-causing glyphosate, and losing weight? What if you could do all of that by not engaging in single-use plastic while enjoying delicious 100% organic superfoods which are sustainably grown and dehydrated on local farms within the U.S.? Look into the Purium Ultimate Lifestyle Transformation and remember to use referral code MANDELA for 25% off your superfoods. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're sitting here at the most southern point of the continent of Africa. So we are on the eastern coast, coming up from Cape Agulhas, the most southern point. And I'm not going to tell you exactly where, because that's a secret. But I'll say that if I look to my left, there are the most beautiful sand dunes in the entire world. Might be a little bit biased, but they're covered in beautiful fynbos. And on the other side of them is the Indian Ocean, and you can hear the waves. It's not too windy today, but you might occasionally breeze of salty air. And I'm sitting under what's called an aftak. It's like an outside eating area with a thatch roof and open air on the walls. And if I look to my right, I'll see a rolling fynbos and another hut. It's an A-frame thatch hut. The thatch is local. And I'm sitting here with Amy Moka, and she's my cousin. She has many stories to share, and I've known her my entire life. We've been coming to this place together, and for the past few days, just sharing memories of our childhood and being here. And we both have a passion for snakes and for sand dunes and for dogs and for animals in general. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you, Amy, for agreeing to join me on the trail less traveled. My first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Growing up in Swadenlam, which is also along the Langeberg Mountains. We climbed trees, climbed rocks. My dad is a private boys' school, so my friends were always boys. So I'm a bit of a tomboy. That's how we grew up, chasing snakes and catching snakes in gardens from old ladies usually just hear the screams down the road and then you know someone found a snake in their garden. Because the first time I was bitten by a snake is by rescuing a little night adder from someone's garden. And the lady was actually throwing bricks at us. We were jumping over a fence and uh, she was trying to catch us and I was running with the snake in my hand and only when I realized, you know, when I got into my parents' garden to try and release it somewhere, I realized it was attached to my finger. So it bit me. Luckily, sometimes with the adders, they also do what we call a dry bite. So they don't always release venom. So that was quite a lucky little situation for me. I never told my mom. (laughs) I did go into my room. I closed the door and I lay in my bed very quietly to see what's going to happen next. (laughs) I thought maybe I was going to die. But it didn't stop me from catching snakes. Yeah, so that was that part of it. And then at San Sebastian... 
private nature reserve. Obviously, we're very fortunate to every now and then get a beautiful puff adder. Now, obviously, the type of snake that you'll see, depending where it is, it will change color. It's adapted very well to its environment. It's closer to the mountainous areas, the darker they get. And the closer they are to the sandy regions, normally along our coastline, they can be quite a nice, beautiful pattern with some bright yellow and copper colors. Um, nice fat snake, usually not more than 60 or so centimeters long, but they can become quite fat. That's why they're also called a puff adder. They sort of inflate themselves a little bit, and then they can become the thickness of a man's forearm, pure muscle, very docile snakes. But you can sometimes hear them if they're really angry, then you can hear them. They make quite an interesting sound. It's nearly like a blowing sound, but it's, yeah, it's an amazing snake. It's definitely my favorite snake on earth. We also see their tracks on the dunes, which is quite like a little scuffle. So you'll see just every now and then the marks that you actually see is here and there the belly, because it also moves a little bit to the side and a little tick of the tail at the back. Um, especially the females because the female has a it doesn't taper out at the bottom like the males it's really fat and then it suddenly makes a little short tip and that tip quite often in the sand makes it a little like a little scratch mark it's fascinating to watch if you find these tracks to follow them around in the dunes is super cool yeah we're speaking with Amy Mocha and she mentioned Swellendam, South Africa, which is in the Western Cape and also this private nature reserve where we're recording the show right now. So we're here at the most southern point of Africa. And I want to talk to Amy more about San Sebastian, this private nature reserve. Can you tell us a little bit of the history of Swellendam? I think it's the third oldest establishment in South Africa. Yeah, that's correct. Third, we were actually a republic. That was the time that Jan van Riebeek was in Cape Town. 1652 and then he sent some Dutch guys out to Swellendam which is two hours from Cape Town about 250 kilometers and they had to create a settlement there because it was also the halfway mark from coming across from the Karua side over the mountains so whenever the people from the Karua had to come to the Cape whether it was for our indigenous forest the wood that's used to build the ships the VOC which is the, the Dutch the company um, they've also built the castle and everything in Cape Town but yeah Swadenham is the third oldest and now we are better known for our history the Cape Dutch settlements there the museum but obviously there's a sad part of Swadenham was obviously all the slaves that were there we had slave quarters on our property at the school we also have a small just you know outside a little slave burial area that my father discovered they didn't know what it was so they were going to build over it and luckily my dad knew so our previous Italian neighbor went and he planted roses all over the graves so that he knew it would be protected forever but yeah that to me is always the sad part of the Dutch being in our country they brought with them the slavery which is not like but they were mostly used to build ships go to the Swalina Museum it's quite apparent that they also built stuff for the wagons. They also built wagons in Swellendam. A lot of these wagons went out to other areas. And they came from this area specific because of the wood. And we obviously have indigenous forests where we have beautiful stinkwood, yellow wood. Yeah, and obviously in those days people just chopped everything off. Then when Nisna became established, we were part of the Nisna route. 
Nisner also has massive indigenous forests. They had elephants in the forests there. We used to have buffalo all along the Langeberg Mountains. That's why it's called Biffeljachs, just outside of town where there's a little river. Also a big dam now, which is man-made. So the whole area, they used cattle and horses to drag these massive logs out of our forests, which is obviously horrendous. But luckily, we are lucky that all of these areas have now been also been proclaimed as nature reserves, so the forests are protected. And we are fortunate enough to be able to go into these forests. Uh, we were there last week, Sunday, with some of the boys, and we went to go have a braai, or barbecue, like you say, in the forest, and we could swim in the rock pools, and it's just amazing. I think we're just so fortunate growing up in these areas, that we've got so much little spots to go to that are just so untouched still, you know, and really seriously protected. I mean, they are policed, which is absolutely fantastic. We're here in South Africa speaking with Amy Mocha. We're recording in the bush on a private nature reserve at the most southern point on the Indian Ocean. And Amy, now I'd like to ask you about some of the history of South Africa. Why the Dutch came to South Africa, you know, you're talking about the Dutch coming and bringing some of their influence that is very prominent now. Also just covered wagons and there's a lot of history there. Just for those listening who may not know some of the history of the Dutch in South Africa. They didn't cross from Holland across Europe, the continent, because obviously they would have to go through Russia or wherever, which is those days I think highly unlikely that they didn't have the equipment or the wagons, nothing. So they came from the sea and then they would use South Africa as a halfway mark as well. The whole point was to establish, and that's why Jan van River came to South Africa, to Cape Town specifically, because he had to create a place where the ships could stop and get fresh food, fresh vegetables, because obviously they were at sea for months at end. So that was the main reason, and that's when they started growing grapes in the Cape. And that was the Dutch influence as well, is to bring guys from France and from overseas to start establishing hops farms and so on. Hops didn't work well in the Cape. In the Western Cape, you will not really find very successful hops farms. They were more towards George. And then obviously from the Cape, they would also go across to India specifically for the spices. Mm -hmm. And that's why now if you go to Holland, you can walk around in the Netherlands. They have a very strong eastern influence but from the Indian side mm -hmm. the bitter bala, all of those things that they eat, the pancakes, it's all from the Indian and that's how we had Cape Malayans they were brought with the Dutch to cook for them mm -hmm. and then obviously taken back to Europe as kitchen girls and so on mm -hmm. the Dutch also liked the women because they were pretty and they could cook mm -hmm. <laughs> So that was the main reason why they were in Cape Town, to start establishing places where they could find food and water. The place that we're sitting right at now was also the lady that lived here, whose house this was 200 years ago, whatever, because it's the only place with a well. And the well that we have here at this place is also, must be 100 years old or so. Mm -hmm. And we still use it every day. It has groundwater that just seeps through a little bit so it's never deeper than a meter or so if it is even that deep now so you can't pump more than there is mm -hmm. you know you have to pump it out and then you leave it and then there'll be water again tomorrow mm -hmm. which is quite magical but the whole point was she had a little garden here as well so people that came along here 
with whatever they did. She was able to provide them with fresh food and water for the animals as well, you know, Mm -hmm. which is quite cool. So it has always been a feeding station, and I think it still is. You know, we like to feed people in this place. (laughs) Yeah. You are on the trail less traveled, and we are recording the show on the Indian Ocean at the most southern point of Africa. I'm speaking with Amy Moka, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about this place, a private nature reserve, and what it was like for her and I to grow up here. But now it's time for a song. If you could share a song with the audience, a song that reminds you of your early childhood. Mamas and the Papas, because the bit in the song where they sing about all the leaves are brown, I think for us, because our seasons are totally different from the other side of the world when our leaves go brown then we know it's the end of our summer and this time of the year that we are in now we have we definitely have endless summer in south africa we start in september it goes straight through to march april end of april and it's such a jolly song and it reminds me of my parents my mom was absolute hippie i was born in the 70s my mom had massive hair, there was so much of it. Big hoopy earrings, a real gypsy type. She used to also wear bangles basically up to her elbows and these long skirts that she made herself. So she could have been in one of the mamas and the papas. Today we are recording the trail less traveled underneath a aftak, which is a outside eating area with a thatch roof, open air. Coming from the southwest right now is a nice salty wind, not too strong. We've got a barricade of pillows built up here, um, very professional to block the wind. And on the other side of the dunes is the Indian Ocean. So we're here at the most southern point of Africa on a nature reserve. We won't tell you exactly where it is because some places should remain secret and sacred and this is a very sacred place for both me and my guest today her name is amy moka she's my cousin we have been coming here our entire life and i want to talk to her now about this place about the flora the fauna the wildlife the vibe why do you come here let's talk about san sebastian i think we come here to escape reality place where we can disappear into dunes I can bring all my dogs which I've got four of when my whole family's together we sometimes have nine to ten dogs at the same time so we also travel in packs my family quite a large clan and we enjoy spending time together we can all just do our own thing the main attraction is cooking around the fire every night taking turns we have it's nearly like you have teams and This is the one place my brother-in-law and I get on like a house on fire because we like to cook together, we understand each other, it works very well. We definitely come to San Sebastian because we realize that it's a place where everything else doesn't matter as much as you think it does. It's a place where you come to find yourself, you can wander off on the dunes, no one will think there's something wrong because it's sort of expected of every person to find their own little spot or their own little space and just be, you know, not to think about anything outside. This morning I spent maybe half an hour or 40 minutes just following tracks and having my imagination run off with me about what this animal was thinking because you could clearly see the one point whether it's a what we call a masont 
in Afrikaans, it's closer to your skunks in America or so on. There was a point where he was obviously running up to this little deer and it just the track stopped there because he was obviously just standing there watching and listening with his little ears. And I think that is so cool. You can stand there and you don't have to explain to anybody what you are thinking about or whatever. And they just follow the tracks back, they disappear into the bushes. Then you find the next set and you imagine what was happening there. There's a little scuffle, a couple of feathers lying around. That to me is San Sebastian, it's about disappearing. And in the evenings, it's social time. Everybody gets together and tells stories and laugh and make jokes and kids fall asleep under the aftak on the couches to be carried away to bed by some parent at some point. And tonight also we'll have some dogs and that's San Sebastian to me. It's everything and every little thing as well. I think that's what makes it magical. Wonderful, Amy. Let's talk about San Sebastian on more of a nature reserve level. I would love to be actually reminded of the story about how this place came to be. I think that my grandparents had something to do with it and your parents. In truth, more so than for the radio show, I would like to hear a little bit more about the history of San Sebastian and how it came to be a nature reserve. Well, San Sebastian is originally a farm. So later on, the farm was called Kleinfontein. And then years later, the farmer split the farm up into two sections. And on this farm, there were one or two huts. Our hut was one of the originals. And then the last hut on the river where Lauren stays, they also had an original hut. There were only two huts here. And the farmer said he can't farm here, he can't do anything. So he decided to break it up into shares. And then my father and Mandy's grandfather was obviously a bit older than my dad but they were very good friends and your grandfather sort of convinced my father to drive out with him to come and see the place and maybe also buy a little hut my father had he was here and they went home and he started talking to my mom how on earth would they get the 5,000 rand together to buy this because 5,000 rand was this is nearly 42 years ago I wasn't born yet and my dad had to go to the bank and he had to go to a good friend of his that's a doctor and the doctor told him, Adrian, I'm not going to lend you the money because he only wanted a thousand rand from him. And he said, I'm not lending you money because this is a bad investment. Nobody would ever, ever want to go to a place like that. And now it's impossible to buy a spot here. Um, they just never go for sale. You keep it in your family forever and ever. And... We're very grateful. We had it proclaimed as a private nature reserve in 1991 to help protect it from outside influences as well because of the wetlands area and the river estuary. That's where all the fish come and breed. Uh, You'll have the big black mud banks where you've got, it's a type of a prawn, a mud prawn that the fish are crazy about. We've got certain fish here that only eat that. They don't eat anything else, and they are, that's what we call the, the grunter. In Afrikaans, we call it the knorhaan, because knor is like a growl, and haan is like a chicken. They've got fins that stand up straight up on their back like a cockerel, and then they blow into these holes with their noses, so they make a snorting sound, and then you normally just see the tip of the tail just above the water, but you can hear the snoring. And then, you know, the little prawn gets spat out on the other side of the little tunnel and then the fish comes and chows it. 
So quite often you'll see bits of prawns lying around there. That bits have been bitten off by the fish. It's an absolute nursery if you walk along the water, especially in the shallow waters like I did this morning as well. There are thousands and thousands of schools of fish and they're always in different stages of their life. So you won't have little ones and big ones in the same school. They will all be the same age, the same size, which is magical because you realize that they are so well organized. Their DNA, how it works to get them into these little schools and they stay together. No matter what you do, if you walk through the water, they split up and in two seconds later, if you turn around, they're back into their group. And some of them are, it could be a thousand fish in one school and they could be a centimeter long. They're so small. Some of them are basically see-through. You can only see their heads because they're still growing. All their cells haven't developed yet. And then some of them are much bigger, maybe the size of your hand that you can see, but also always in schools. The whole river mouth area, that was one of the reasons we were able to have it proclaimed as a nature reserve because of the importance and the whole breeding side of, of the fish and also other animals that come in. We, we do know that we've got smaller sharks and so on that will come into the river mouths, mostly to hunt, but also for their breeding purposes because it's a more secure area. We often find the shark eggs that are washed up on the beach, all various sizes, which are crazy looking things. And they've got little tendrils and the tendrils attach themselves to the seagrass so the, the eggs stay in a spot until they can grow. And then when the shark is a certain size, normally it's about six or seven centimeters long, sometimes smaller, they actually break through the little membrane themselves. It looks uh, quite leathery. And then they swim and they're obviously all by themselves not in a school or anything like that so they have to try and take care of themselves and that's why it's so important that places like this exist so that the animals can grow a little bit bigger before they go out into the ocean because we all know that sharks are they've got a very difficult life um, people don't always care too much about them there's a lot of smaller sharks that people don't even know about everybody knows about the great white and the zambezi and the bull shark and the tiger shark but the smaller ones that we have around here one is called the spear high. We've got a gray shark. We've got various species of sand sharks. We've got small hammerheads. And they are seen quite often by the younger divers that go around this area. They do see them. But they are no threat to us. There's enough food and, you know, it's a healthy river system. So we've got nice big cob, which is a type of fish, and which they specifically enjoy eating because it's a very fatty fish. And the sharks, they need quite a lot of fat in their diets. Also because they go into much colder oceans. So the fat obviously helps to insulate them. But also in during breeding time, the males can be quite aggressive towards each other. And the females as well. So they need that little bit of extra protection, especially around their organs. We sometimes see dolphins around here. But they're always moving. You know, they're after the sardines and so on. Um, and then obviously the vegetation we've got just what we call the feinbos which is quite unique you need four species of plants to have the area proclaimed as feinbos where you've got your restios which is your thatch your reed types then we have got the ericas or the ericoids it's a type of flower that we get here with a little pink or a little white flower then we've got a certain grass species we've got more than one which is also a type of restio and if they're not there, then it's one of the four that's obviously not there. Then it's not a true fine boss area. 
It's also referred to as the Rhinosterfeld, which is Rhinoster is rhino. And that goes back to our history a bit that we used to have animals like that also roaming around, which is quite interesting. We do have other wildlife here. We've got the caracal, which is a lynx, which is a type of a cat. Beautiful cat loners. They only together when they are busy in mating, so they don't walk around with a partner. And then you've got your smaller type of animals, like your skunks, or you call it skunks, we call it mosonder. We've got genets, which is also a type of a wildcat. We also get the true African wildcat or a boskat, deer boskat. We've got a few different names for them, but it's the same as a domestic size cat, but just much more gnarly. You don't want them to get near anything that might be a dog or a cat because they're quite aggressive, but you chances you ever see one is nearly zero. And then obviously our little little reptiles, we've got the kogelmander or blowkop kogelmander. That's a type of a lizard and they've got a blue head. Also the males, their heads will be quite prominently blue more than the females and they like the thatch roofs. So they sit quite often in the sun. You'll sometimes see them sitting on the huts where you'll just hear something scuffling across and it will be them. They like to sit up there because the bugs like to sit there, there as well, which they obviously feed on. And in our snakes, mostly we also get the olive green house snake. We also get the brown house snake or the aurora, well known because they have a little yellow line just above their eyes on each side. So you can't mistake them for anything else. Then we get big mole snakes, um, not venomous at all, but they can give you a nasty bite because they can get quite aggro. So if you do see a very dark brown or black snake, the head will have a shape, uh, we call it a scuffle nest because it's a shovel nose that's able to go under the sand. Uh, they usually go for the dune moles which get quite large out here. A dune mole is nothing like a mole that you would see on a golf course. It's the size of a cat, they can get quite large, nasty looking teeth. You will also hardly ever see one in your life and they make these strange tunnels on the dunes that you can see just above the sand you'll have this long, it looks like a subway. Um, so we used to follow that around when we were kids, you might remember that. Mm -hmm. And then we would dare each other to put your hand in it. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the wildlife, it's, it's quite interesting here. There's a large variety and obviously we get the Cape Cobra, which can also be varying in colors. Not as much around the houses though. They do tend not to like people, so they tend to try and stay away. If we catch one at a house, it's because no one has been here for a while and they're hanging out here to look for the mice and so on. The minute they realize there's vehicles and things going on, they disappear. A puffer will stay if we turn up here and we haven't been here for a long time. If it's hiding somewhere, it will stay there for that whole weekend until we leave and then it will come out again. It's not strange for a puffer to lay in the same spot for three, four days at the end. It's quite usual. And that's normally how we find them because they've been under the wood or they've been behind the green trunk and we thought it was a frog and it's a big fat puff adder. Unless she's going to stand on them, you know, you, you'll be okay. It's normally people that mess with them that get bitten, you know. And they're not by nature aggressive at all, very docile. The Cape Cobras as well, when you do see one, the main thing is just to stand as still as possible. It's quite well known amongst the snake guys. One of the guys you are, Marie, is an absolute snake genius. 
And he always says, you know, if you stand very stalled, you must remember the snake's sight isn't very good at all. So they rely on smell, but they don't smell like we smell. They use their tongues. So the, the tongue is actually used to take particles out of the air. And that goes, there's the organ in the top of their mouth called the organ of Jacobson. And that is specially designed to take those particles and it actually tells the snake in its brain what is around you know they do the same with their prey so if they've caught something you'll see the tongue flickering around quite a lot because they're busy sensing what's happening and so on so it's quite fascinating just like sharks anything like that snakes it's not that they have a big think about everything it's just the way that they operate is absolutely interesting because they are very misunderstood and there's a lot of things we still don't know about them people do keep snakes in captivity which I'm totally against the fact that they can't they can't even lose their skin like they do in a natural manner because in nature when they lose the skin the whole skin comes off at the same time where in captivity you have to help it along it's a different process you know which I always feel it's something basic but for the snake it's its life you know it gets rid of scars it gets rid of any parasites anything like that if they're not in their full you know, the best environment that they can be, then you are letting the animal suffer, even if it's something small like that. It's not natural for it. Snakes don't travel in pairs. Snakes can't chase you. They don't chase you. They're really just not trying to do anything with us, you know. Um, I think they are totally misunderstood creatures. Beautiful. You're on the trail less traveled, and we're recording the show on the most southern point of the continent of Africa on the Indian Ocean and we're right now at a nature reserve. We're speaking with Amy Moka and when we come back I'm going to talk to Amy a little bit more about the snake course that she took. When you look at her bucky, in South Africa a bucky is a small truck and if you look at her bucky she's got these red stickers on the back that say caution venomous snakes aboard and we're going to learn more about that because Amy is qualified to handle poisonous snakes and she does a good job of it because she's very mindful of the life of all sentient beings. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that. But Amy, it is time for another song. So while you think about what song you want to play, I'm going to go pee in the bush. Bull Jam, I'm Still Alive. That is, I had a most awesome t-shirt of that when I'm in my teenage years. With the character standing with his hands widespread like this. Just mm-hmm. a silhouette of mm-hmm. a character. My brother made that teacher disappear. He never admitted to what that he took it from me, but he definitely took it with him to Germany. Mm, I haven't forgiven him for that. One of my ultimate songs, driving out here yesterday, I had it on quite loud through the bush. Mm. Uh, I just love it. It's such a cool song. Aloha, my name is Rebecca Hall. I'm here on the beautiful island of Kauai. I'm a massage therapist and a yoga instructor and a wellness coach. And I wanted to share my story here gratefully for these healing superfoods. My husband and I hit rock bottom here in Kauai about four years ago. Our son was 18 months old. We have a beautiful garden and dig up turmeric and juice from our garden every day. However, just the pressures of life really got to us. And it got to my husband so severely that he became suicide depressed. 
he couldn't hold on to his tools at work anymore just from chronic inflammation. So I took on more massage and then I became injured. We both put a massive prayer out for something to change in our life. These superfoods came along and completely transformed our life. Within about a week of using the superfoods, my husband started speaking again. He could make a fist with his hand and hold on to things. And my lifetime osteoarthritis pain and inflammation disappeared. So we're extremely grateful for these superfoods. They've completely changed our life. Thank you, Mandela, for taking the opportunity to share. Aloha. Visit ishoppurium.com and check out Purium Ultimate Lifestyle Transformation. Remember to use referral code MANDELA for 25% off your order. That referral code, M-A-N-D-E-L-A, will also help the future of Adventure Radio. We're recording the trail less traveled today in the bush of Southern Africa. So we're on the Indian Ocean right now, right at the southern tip of the continent of Africa. And I'm sitting here with Amy Moka. Amy and I grew up here. I wasn't here as much as her because I was going back and forth between America and South Africa. My mom's American, my father's South African. Quite a lot of history for my family in this part of the world. Amy, I'd like to talk to you more about snakes, but before we do that, one of the questions I ask people is to do their best to look around and paint a picture for the listener as to what you are looking at. What does it look like when you look to your left and your right? What does it smell like? Can you help take the listener here? We're looking at our fireplace, which is basically an area flat on the sand that we've collected stones for ourselves. It's a type of a limestone that we pick up here. And we've used them to make a circle. So we always in the circle area is enough space for everybody to sit. Sometimes we have a double row at the back. Sometimes we have too many people. We obviously have all our grids that we use to bry on in the fire. We've got a beautiful little minotoka tree that we've planted ourselves as well. I think it's about 15 years old now. My dad planted it and it makes a fantastic umbrella. Eventually, the whole idea is it will give the shade to the fireplace because in the summertime, we can't sit by the fireplace in the daytime because it's too hot. So it's becoming quite cool, that this umbrella. Um, and in the tree, you know, on the branches, you'll have various thicknesses of rope that's all been picked up on the beach. They are a form of entertainment for the kids to hang on and sit in. We also have one of these thick ropes is to let everybody know someone is on the other side in the bathroom which is also a little hut in the bush but we actually have got a bright yellow flush toilet and it's got a the most beautiful view of just dunes so if you open door like we, all of us do then you sit and you stare out you know up against the dunes in the bush and some of the milkwood trees that are growing on the dunes and the smell always a little bit salty if you smell your hands if you've been to the beach even if you've washed your hair, something always still smells that typical salty air. This time of the day, it's normally quite quiet with the birds and so on. You'll have some of them that you can hear, but the rest of them are now also taking shelter from the heat and just chilling somewhere else. Yeah, and we're surrounded by dunes and bush, which is quite typical. We've got the outside washing up area. If you sit under the aftak for long, then you'll see little 
mice coming around, scuffling to see if there's some crumbs somewhere. And everything just moves around you. You just become part of the environment. Yeah, that's what we see. What's on the other side of the sand dunes that are to your right? More sand dunes. And then the most beautiful ocean. We've got about 16 kilometers of pristine beach that is part of the nature reserve. So we can walk the 16 kilometers, then you get to massive rocks, cliffs, on which the other side is a little town called Witsant. So we've done that walk before. We normally do it once a year. We go all the way to Witsant. But the beach and the, the coastline at the moment, it's becoming low tide. So the sea is always changing. So you never know what you might find tonight or today, what shoals, what is washed up. The whole bay that we are in is called San Sebastian Bay. So from the river mouth to the end where Witsant is, that's all part of the San Sebastian Bay. It's a very well-known area for whales to come and breed. We have the humpback as well as the southern right whale that comes here normally between June, July, August, which is our colder months. Then they come, they don't actually eat while they're here, the whales, which is quite interesting. They only come and they you know, use the rocks to get rid of the barnacles on their backs. And they calve here, the calves drink. And the calves can drink, it's ridiculous, something like 500 liters of milk per day, which is insane. But the mothers, that's why whatever happens up in the colder areas where there's snow and glaciers where the whales actually come from, it's so important that there's food up there for them because otherwise they can't survive coming down here and having a baby. They will also die of starvation. And then obviously during this time that the whales are here with their calves, they're quite vulnerable. You do have attacks on the whales, obviously from sharks. The killer whales are quite a aggressive thing, as beautiful as the, the orcas are. And we also have the orcas along the coast here that come past, but they're also hunting great whites, which is quite a, a thing that's been happening now along our coast that people have found sharks towards Mossel Bay area, which is about 100 k's from here along the coast, um, that they found, you know, great whites that have washed out with their livers missing. And that's because of the killer whales that target them specifically for that fat, because they, again, our environment is obviously not healthy at the moment. Mm. So a lot of the species are now preying on other species and it's becoming a bit of a issue. So... Yeah, it's not a not a good thing. As kids as well, yeah, we never saw orcas ever. Our water's too warm. It's not natural for them to swim around here. The food that they like to eat is not around here. Um, they prey on seals. We don't naturally have any seals in this area. They're more towards Mossel Bay, Roburg, those areas, and then towards Cape Town side again, where the water's a lot colder. So our area is not known for them whatsoever. So when we do see them, then it's it's highly unnatural for them to be around here. Mm-hmm. But the bay itself, like I said, the San Sebastian Bay of the Sea, it's a very important breeding area. And that's why this whole massive sections of the ocean here that's also protected. Mm-hmm. If you go past the point where Infanta is, there's a large area there that they're not allowed to fish in. They're not allowed to dive there because it's also a breeding area. There's a seal colony at the other side of Infanta. So we're the only section in between that has no seals. But it's also because our long beach, so it's not a natural area for seals. There's no protection for them. So they don't come onto the shore here. Mm-hmm. You know, they it's not safe. Amy, 
we're talking about animal species, and that's something that I would like to have you elaborate on. Mainly mindfulness of all sentient beings, and maybe beginning with snakes, because a lot of people give snakes a bad rap, and on the back of your bucky it says, I break for snakes. And you've gone through a course to show you how to carefully and gently move snakes should they need to be moved. But I'd like to have you talk about that because good chance that whoever's listening here is in an area where there's also snakes. And I've seen snakes not handled mindfully. And I'd like for you to share some of your wisdom about how to take care of animals as if they were a living sentient being, which they are. Yeah, it's definitely better especially with the snakes on that side because we've got guys that are posted we belong to a group and you register yourself. I actually have not registered myself as a registered snake catcher and that's because we've got a guy that's 50 kilometers away from where I live, Gerry, Gerry Heinz. And Gerry's a master at what he does. So we don't like to tread on each other's toes. It's a question of respect because he's the more experienced person. If someone phones me, it's because they can't get hold of Harry, and that's the way I want it. So I always say to them, have you phoned Harry? Mm-hmm. Because it's his actual job, you know, so people give him donations. Where I do it purely because I just love snakes. I would do anything for any time of the day just to see one because I, it gives me such an amazing adrenaline rush even if it's just in see one, you know, in the forest or anywhere. I just love seeing them. And I've been catching them since I was little. But when the course was available in Stellenbosch, I said to Richard, you know, I have to do this because the guy that does the course is my hero. I've got all his books. I've read all his books since I was little. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's for some people to see a movie star. You know, for me, this was this guy is my absolute hero. There's nothing he does not know about snakes. Uh, I belong to his Facebook page. I belong to the African Snake Bite Institute's Facebook page as well. And these guys handle snakes that are just incredibly massive. You know, we're talking about black mambas that are more than two meters long, two and a half, nearly three meters, which is just insane. And they only handle them because they're removing them from places where the snake can cause an injury or be injured itself. Uh, They do a lot of awareness. They go to a lot of schools. They talk to a lot of people, especially in Natal, KwaZulu-Natal, where it's mostly a Zulu and Koza community. And because of their superstitions, they do believe that snakes are evil because of their religious beliefs. So they do kill a lot of snakes and it's now becoming a lot better. There's a a guy that has a program, Snakes in the City, and him and his girlfriend, they have quite an interesting program, but it's very entertaining. They even go into the shanty towns and remove snakes because everybody in the shanty town, they want a snake because then they're going to be on TV. But it's creating so much awareness and it means that these snakes aren't being killed. And obviously less people get bitten because it's a well-known thing when you watch these things where these snakes go into because of rats and mice. You know, the kids do get bitten because they put their hand down a shelf and there is a black mamba there. And unfortunately they get bitten specifically by the black and the green mambas up there. Are quite, they're not aggressive, but they get touched. You know, and the minute you grab something you didn't know it's a snake, it's going to bite you. 
yeah, when I saw these guys are going to be in, in South Africa, they're going to be in Stellenbosch. It's a Saturday. I did everything in my power to be there as well because it's just amazing to watch someone that's really so experienced and they bring snakes along that you've never handled before, you know, and that was an opportunity for me to also see the differences we normally, if you have a cobra in your area, it's normally the same one. You know, you catch it today, you release it, it's maybe still busy with something that it's going to eat there. So you have to go through a process of clearing your area to make sure that you don't have mice and rats because obviously the more overpopulated we get, the more rats and things we have in our areas. But it's it's a lot better now because the farmers and so on, they don't put poison out anymore for the jackals. In other words, you have animals that are naturally attracted to carrion like your vultures are coming back we've got not far from here along the coast we've got an area called the whip nature reserve as well and there's a, a breeding colony of cape vultures we didn't have vultures about 25 30 years ago there was only three left in the whole of the world and they've now gotten back to a population of about 150 of them which is fabulous you know and if people think vultures are just there, they're just strange animals. They are incredibly important, especially in Africa, where we do have quite a lot of animals that do die. There's a nasty thing called anthrax that likes to live in dead tissue and in the, specifically in the bone marrow. And the vultures, they come and they swallow whole bones. They don't break them. They can swallow a whole bone, even if it's 10, 15 centimeters long. Mm. And to see them do it is crazy. But that is their job. So they are basically getting rid of anything that can cause a bacterial infection or outbreak. So they're incredibly important in our environment, you know, the cleanup crew. Mm -hmm. Same with the jackals and so on. That's their job, the crows. But that to me, because the whole circle, obviously, everything on land, everything in the ocean, they're all connected and we are the only things that don't fit in and we're not making enough effort. So yeah, at a very young age, I've always tried to save whatever I could. Uh, I always say animals and old people are my favorite things, but it's hard. It's an ongoing thing and going on a course like that, what I also enjoy is you with 50 other people that feel exactly the same way you do, which is fantastic. All shapes and sizes, old and young and different stories why they want to do it, but at the end of the day, everybody does it for the same reasons. It's to be able to remove a snake or in your own property, to be able to remove one safely without harming them. And that's what you basically learn on such a day as well. And you also learn that these animals, no matter how many people have handled them, you know, we could be 15 in a group and you're handling the same cobra and the snake never once tries to strike because it's not that upset and we learn as well when you're busy catching it and it's wriggling around too much and it's obviously quite cross and stressed that we put it down somewhere again you just leave it for a little bit just to let it you know get its vibe back um, because you also don't want to cause them unnecessary stress but yeah catching snakes we release them I release them from here at San Sebastian we catch them we go near where the big gates are when we enter the property and even if they decide to travel back to the same spot which is unlikely uh, because they're just off the food they don't see 
second race you back to your house you know they stay where they are they go find another hole to go and find another mouse or something like that and they've always incredibly docile the minute you've got them out of the container the first thing they try and do is find somewhere to go hide from you you know even with the cobras and so on if the minute they see you and you stand dead still they do not come closer to investigate if you stand incredibly still you're not trying to catch it or anything it's going to go flat down on the ground lift its head a little bit to see where it is and just disappear they're also curious but if you don't move they can't see you very well so they're just not interested mm. you know we, we are more of a threat to them definitely although they are relatively dangerous that is the voice of Amy Mocha, and she was kind enough to join us on the trail less traveled today, which is recording on location at the most southern point of Africa on a private nature reserve surrounded by Feinbos. Thank you, Amy. Let's end this show with three bits of advice. First rule of South Africa, sunblock. Lots and lots of sunblock, a good hat, and a big smile will get you most places. Greet people, look them in the eye. South Africans, we are quite set on the way. Your first impression is definitely based on the greet. I think that is the most important thing that we are all taught from a very young age is to make the eye contact because that tells a lot about a person, you know. It tells me that you've got the confidence and you are open to new friendships and relationships. And I think if you do all of those little things, then you will have a fantastic time and you can make great friends in South Africa. That's it. Amy, what song would you like to end your show with? Freddie Mercury, the show must go on. Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I want to thank you so much for joining me on location at the most southern point of South Africa. Tonight's interview was recorded on a private nature reserve where I spent my childhood. I'd like to thank my guest this week, my cousin, Amy Mocha. Amy is a teacher in Swellendam, South Africa. Amy also has a background in expert poisonous snake knowledge and handling. She has trained with Southern Africa's top snake experts. Amy is also a animal lover and animal activist who takes care of horses, dogs, and animals from all walks of life who deserve a second chance. The Trail Less Traveled is an adventure radio series and podcast that is dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world. You can listen to The Trail Less Traveled every Sunday night from 6 to 7 Mountain Time. The show streams live at trail1033.com. And if you miss a show or want to check out the full archive of over 400 shows, you should check out the official website, traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week is when you are in Africa or anywhere where there are poisonous snakes, look where you're putting your feet. And when you're walking around at night, you're always going to want a torch or at least a nice big bright moon so that you don't step on any friends. Another tip is when you're driving in the bush, please keep an eye out for snakes and other small critters like tortoises who may be crossing the road around the same time that you're driving down the road. 
Let's keep an eye out for these sentient beings who may just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, do something for Mother Earth. It's a really wonderful time of year to plant a tree. And if you're able to, get outside and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. My name is Yuvia Storm. I live in Bend, Oregon. At 38 years old, I found myself experiencing brain fog, massive hormone shifts, exhaustion, forgetfulness, and extreme emotional highs and lows. I had jaw acne, night sweats, body aches, and sleepless nights. It was frustrating. I did yoga, ate minimal sugar and processed foods, gardened, fermented, sprouted. What was I doing wrong? Thanks to a dear friend, I found the ultimate lifestyle transformation. In just a few days, I felt lightness of being and clarity. By the end of my transformation, my face had cleared. I had energy. My body was toned, glowing, and flexible. Now, two years later, my hormones remain balanced, and my exhaustion and brain fog have not returned. Purium superfoods are 100% organic superfoods and herbs grown and dehydrated sustainably in the USA and then delivered to your door. Transform your life through daily cellular nutrition. It's worked for both Yuvia and myself. Visit ishoppurium.com and check out the Purium Ultimate Lifestyle Transformation. Remember to use referral code MANDELA for 25% off your order. That referral code, M-A-N-D-E-L-A, will not only help you, it will also help the future of Adventure Radio.